Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 20th of October. Today, America ramps up the pressure on President Hamid Karzai after an inquiry by a UN watchdog finds Afghanistan's election result invalid. People are starting to wonder whether Mr Karzai can frankly ever be the sort of partner that the United States and its allies need to bring this this war to a conclusion. Working fathers want to spend more time with their children, according to research by the Equal Rights Watchdog. They no longer believe that it should automatically be the man who stays at work when childcare is required. They think it's the better paid partner. And the Tate Modern teams up with Wallace and Gromit to make its first feature film, hopefully with the help of a million school children. And today, my friends, I want to tell you about something that will make you and me extremely famous. First, the news with Bill Overton. Crucial talks aimed at averting a postal strike will resume today at a secret location in central London. Leaders of the Communication Workers Union spent 12 hours locked in negotiations with Royal Mail yesterday, but time's running out on reaching a deal to prevent planned walkouts on Thursday and Friday. Gordon Brown said to be very concerned about the impact of a strike, and a spokesman said the Prime Minister is monitoring the situation very closely. Hamid Karzai, the Afghan president, will bow to international pressure today and accept that should now be a second round of voting after a bitterly contested election. Diplomats in Kabul had warned of a potential car crash between Karzai and the international community. But a senior source said Karzai had been talked round by ultimatums from world leaders, including Hillary Clinton, Gordon Brown and Ban Ki-moon. There's more on this to come from our correspondent in Kabul later in Guardian Daily. The armed forces are in danger of being hijacked by far-right extremists, a group of former generals warns today. The letter signed by General Sir Mike Jackson and Sir Richard Dannett warns the British National Party is tarnishing the forces reputation by associating itself with their sacrifice. The letter comes amid controversy surrounding the decision of the BBC to invite the leader of the BNP, Nick Griffin, to take part in this week's edition of Question Time. Further to that, the BNP's brace for fresh embarrassment today as leaked details of its full membership is expected to be posted on the internet. Britain's chief inspector of prisons has condemned as pointless the decision to move inmates around London like pieces on a chessboard to subvert inspections. Governors at Pentonville and Wandsworth were criticised for swapping prisoners for the duration of inspections in what Dame Anne Owers called a dereliction of duty of care. Owers says the efforts of many staff and managers who had worked hard to improve the two prisons will inevitably be overshadowed by these events. Now for a look at today's papers, starting with The Telegraph, which claims criminal prosecutions may be ruled out if they cost too much under new guidelines. The paper says the proposals are intended to encourage common sense, but could lead to persistent criminals escaping punishment. The UK's biggest ever investigation into sex trafficking failed to find a single person who had forced anyone into prostitution, according to a Guardian investigation by Nick Davis. The Mail focuses on new vetting rules for parents taking part in school exchange programmes. The paper says both parents will need to submit to child protection checks before they're allowed to host foreign students. The Independent leads with fears more than a million people will be frozen out of the mortgage market by new proposals to ban banks from lending to anyone who cannot prove their income. The Express claims a medical breakthrough will see people replacing failing body parts with off-the-shelf spares. While The Sun, in its inimitable style, goes with world's fattest bloke lives in Ipswich. The back pages look ahead to tonight's Champions League ties. Liverpool take on Lyon, while Arsenal travel to Dutch side Ezi Alkmaar. Follow that and all the rest of the day's news at guardian.co.uk.
The White House says Barack Obama won't send 40,000 extra troops to fight the Taliban in Afghanistan until there's a credible government in Kabul. But the UN-supported Electoral Complaints Commission says hundreds of thousands of votes cast for President Hamid Karzai in August's election were invalid. John Boone reports from Kabul. They've published a series of rather complex and quite impenetrable documents on their website. They haven't published a final vote tally for the main candidates. But from doing some rather complicated maths, we can extrapolate from those orders that the Election Complaints Commission have published to try to, to, to work out how far the Mr. Karzai's vote has fallen. Um, and it looks like, and this has been confirmed by independent analysis, that he's down to about 48%. He's fallen from 55% to 48%. That's below the overall majority that he needed to win on the first round. So in theory, if this result is accepted by the Independent Election Commission, that's the Afghan body that's run this election, it's seen as being heavily partisan towards Mr. Karzai. If that body accepts these, that order, adjusts the official tally of votes for the candidates, then in theory we should be looking at a runoff in the next few weeks. As you say, it will have to be in the next few weeks because the Afghan winter weather is approaching. That's right. There's, uh, it's extraordinary how even the weather has become politicized in the last month or so. People on Karzai's uh, side just a few weeks ago were claiming that uh, the winter weather would set in by mid-October and that would be the last possible date for a second round. However, the um, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers were uh, ordered by the U.S. Embassy some time ago to do a kind of full historical analysis of Afghanistan's weather patterns and they've decided that mid-November is probably the very latest date but certainly if it gets any later than that then large parts of the country will be cut off by the winter snow meaning that some people won't be able to vote and the the country's electoral law says that everyone has to be able to vote um, as far as possible if an election is to go ahead so time is definitely running out for an election before winter although one possibility is that it could be held in the spring uh, although, of course, that would just extend this political vacuum that we've been living in uh, for two months now, over two months since the polling on August 20th. And it leaves Barack Obama's decision on whether to send more American troops to fight the Taliban in limbo. Well, yes, the administration made clear just the other day that they don't want to take any decisions about extra troops and indeed whether or not to change their strategy in Afghanistan until they have an outcome of this election and also that they know what sort of a president they're going to be dealing with. Um, Mr. Karzai's behavior in the, over this election and particularly in the last few days where he's essentially been threatening not to accept these results, thereby triggering an even greater political crisis, um, that behavior has not endeared him at all to Western diplomats who are extremely anxious to move beyond this political crisis. And I think people are starting to wonder whether Mr. Karzai can frankly ever be um, the, the, the sort of partner that the United States and its allies need to bring this, this war to a conclusion and to do all the various bits of business that uh, the Americans want to see happen very urgently within the next year or so. And that includes a comprehensive uh, peace talks with the Taliban 
uh, improvements in reconstruction, economic development, a whole range of things that they want to see urgent action on. And there's now this great question mark about whether Mr Karzai is the man to deliver that. John Boone, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash Afghanistan. Also on The Guardian's website today... Hello, um, I'm Patrick Butler, Head of Society, Health and Education at The Guardian. I'm going to give you a sneak preview of what's in Education Guardian today. Uh, On the cover, we've got John Crace, who goes back to Exeter University 30 years after he graduated. John finds, perhaps inevitably, that things have changed a lot. As he says, it's like dropping in on a parallel universe. Inside, uh, we've got Mike Baker, our regular columnist, is looking at the Conservative education policy, and he's wondering whether the Conservatives are ready to run education or whether they're still relying on sound bites. That said, Michael Gove, who's the Conservative Shadow Children's Secretary, is writing also in Education Guardian about primary school education, and he will expand on, uh, or take a view on last week's review of primary school education. You can read all that in the supplement in today's Guardian, or you can see it online at educationguardian.co.uk. Many fathers feel they spend too much time at work and not enough time with their children. In fact, they're just as unhappy with their work-life balance as mothers. That's according to a survey of 4,500 parents for the Equality and Human Rights Commission. I put it to the Commission's Group Director of Strategy, Andrea Murray, that the plight of working fathers is something we don't often hear about. Parenting is generally a two-person exercise, not for everybody, obviously. Um, But there has been an assumption that it's mothers who will always leave work when the child is sick or will go part-time. And in fact, a large number of fathers are telling us they're interested in doing that as well. But there are lots of obstacles in their way at the moment. What kind of obstacles do they face? Well... Almost half of them aren't even taking the two weeks paternity leave after the birth of their children. And the most common reason they give us is that they can't afford to. At the moment, the, um, their paternity leave is paid at just over £100 a week, actually £123 a week, um, which obviously is a big drop in income for a lot of people. Um, so one of them is financial, but in some ways the more worrying one is that um, 40% of the men who replied to our survey said they were worried about asking for flexible working arrangements because they thought their employer would think they weren't seriously committed to their job and it might negatively affect their chances of a promotion. So it's not just a question of what the legislation allows them to take. There's a whole question of attitudes to working fathers or working parents generally and some kind of assumption that it means you're not a serious employee. Well, you say that it's not just legislation, but I mean, is is there anything else that the government could do to, to help working fathers? Well, we are in the long term advocating um, that the government should move to a more generously paid system of parental leave. We're talking about the same amount of parental leave as mothers and fathers currently get, but that it should be redistributed in a different way so that families have the option to decide whether the father or the mother takes takes the break. Um, We are also advocating, not immediately, but over the next 11 years to 2020, that we move to a more generously paid system of parental leave. 
Although, you know, I, as a working father myself, I, I sort of identify with some of the findings in, in your report. But, you know, shouldn't the Equality and Human Rights Commission be highlighting groups who are more disadvantaged and discriminated against than, than working fathers? Well, I think, again, there's two sides to this coin. The mothers take often a massive drop in pay when they go part-time to look after children. And one of the barriers to greater gender equality is men not taking up part of that caring responsibility. And what this research is telling us is that actually a lot of men want to do this. It's just the current structures are assuming that it should always be women and they're not adequately compensating women or supporting women in their parenting responsibilities. So a more modern approach would be supporting all types of parents to balance their work and family life. And I think it's such a fundamental um, part of most British people's lives. It resonates with people because parenting is time-consuming, it's expensive to get childcare, it affects almost every hour of every day for people who've got kids. This is really fundamental stuff. Andrea Murray. I'm John Dennis, still to come on Guardian Daily, from Aldershot to Zena, an A to Z tour of Britain with Ash. It's the easiest tour yeah. to remember where you're going to be. Cause Normally, as, as a band, you just like you wake up in the morning and you shout to the tour manager, where are we today? You have no idea. Yeah. But this, this way, it, kind of, it all kind of sinks in, really. But first, the Tate has teamed up with Wallace and Gromit creator Nick Park to give children a chance to make an animation. Charlotte Higgins is our chief arts writer. She explains how it's going to work. Well, for the first time ever, Tate is going to make a film with Aardman, but it's not as simple as that. Um, this is a project for kids. So the Tate and Aardman are going to help it is hoped up to about a million kids around the country submit ideas, drawings, sound effects animations, character ideas, story ideas for a film that will then be turned into a feature-length movie which will go out in cinemas in 2011, end of 2011. So it's kind of crowdsourcing for children? Yeah. It's a, it's a really neat idea, I think. What's going to happen is Ardman and Tate, along with the partner galleries and museums of Tate, dotted around the country and in all parts of the museums and galleries in all parts of the country are going to hold workshops for kids. Um, they're going to take the art that exists in these galleries and in the Tate and, uh, as a starting point and introduce kids to the idea, ideas around drawing and also establishing character and story from drawing. Um, they're going to introduce them to um, animation techniques and then they're going to draw all the material from those workshops into a kind of pot from which um, a professional scriptwriter will draw, a st will create a story. Um, and then there'll, there'll also be a big website um, where um, galleries of kids' drawings will be shown, but also Ardman might put out calls for special things that they need. So they might need more trees for backgrounds, for instance. So they'll be saying, draw more trees. Or we need you to send in some sound effects. So send us your burps was one <laughs> potential <laughs> thing that they've already tried out in a trial workshop. I mean, it's a, it's a surefire here, isn't it? Because children love cartoons and uh, tying it in with you know, art, proper art, is a, is a fantastic idea. Yeah, and I think it will hopefully really unlock children's creativity and make them think about story and visual stuff. And I like the way it's, it's absolutely grounded in um, museums and art galleries. So hopefully kids will be able to draw inspiration from great artworks they can see around them. 
We've got a clip from a promotional film that Ardman has made uh, showing children how to get involved. Let's just hear a clip of it. <coughs> Hello. I am director excellent. The Tate Movie Project. A movie which I am directing and which you are making. Yes, you, 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 and you. The aim of it is, is to be extremely professionally produced and to be properly done so that at all stages there'll be a team of, of proper Arden professionals, the kind of people who've brought um, Morph to the screen and brought Wallace and Gromit to the screen, um, really making this into something good. And judging from the little trailer that I saw this morning, it probably will be good. I mean, that was a tiny little animation made based on a trial workshop in Bristol where Ardman's based. And it was incredibly charming. You know, it's the kind of beautiful childlike drawings that the children had made. Obviously, they were childlike, but really rather beautiful. It was just a little woodland scene with little characters running through a wood and then ending up um, watching some frogs leaping through the pond. It was cute, but it had it had real style, and I think you know Ardman will bring their um, amazing expertise to the job, and hopefully it'll be it'll be something good. Charlotte Higgins, Guardian Daily news and reports from around the world. Pakistani forces have pressed on with their attacks as they move to drive out the Taliban from its bases in a lawless region on the Afghan border. Declan Walsh reports for the Guardian from southern Waziristan. Well, I'm in Deir Esmal Khan, which is a town just um, just below the tribal belt. It's a town uh, which has suffered a lot from sectarian violence uh, in recent years. Um, but right now, it's very much the focus of uh, the hub for people who've been fleeing the South Waziristan and the conflict over the last couple of days and indeed over the last couple of weeks. Um, the authorities here have registered about 200,000 people so far and they say that thousands more arriving every day and this could swell to as many as 350, 400,000 people um, over the next couple of weeks. Um, the people that I've spoken to here are telling quite difficult stories about sort of harrowing journeys they've had out of South Waziristan since the fighting started. Um, they're talking about government warplanes bombing the mountains around them as they flee. Um, they're talking about uh, 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 civilians, innocent civilians being caught in the crossfire um, and there's a lot of very stringent criticism of the, of, of the army saying that they haven't been careful enough in their targeting and they, and they are taking innocent civilians as well as the Taliban. And what, what's the latest on the fighting itself, Declan? Well, the, we are in day three of the operation. Uh, the army is pressing in on the Taliban stronghold from three sides. Um, as we understand it, they're um, meeting with some very heavy resistance. The Taliban, of course, know this area very well. Most of them come from it. It's extremely mountainous. It's a place that's been historically very difficult for invading armies. Um, and the Taliban have been laying ambushes. They have been planting roadside bombs that have hit army convoys. Um, and the, the army in turn is using its air superiority, it's um, hitting them with warplanes, it's using helicopter, helicopter gunships. Um, uh, and we are, the, the difficulty really is, it's very hard to know uh, who's telling the truth. Both sides are making 
very strong claims about having taken heavy casualties. Uh, but because the area is sealed off, because the telephone services in this entire region have been have been cut off, um, and because there are basically no journalists with the army or the Taliban, it's very hard to verify reports. But what we can say is that uh, what's certain is that uh, is that heavy fighting is going on. Declan Walsh. To promote what they're calling their A to Z series of singles, the Irish indie rock band Ash have embarked on a 26-date tour of the UK and they're playing each town in alphabetical order. They're playing in tiny venues ending in Zena in Cornwall. Ash began the tour last night in Aldershot, where the Guardian's Stephen Morris caught up with them. OK, I'm Tim. And I'm Rick. And I'm a singer and guitarist. And I'm the drummer. <laughs> So, A for Aldershot. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it? I am. Yeah, I've been really excited about this tour ever since it's been announced, you know, it's really, I uh, just love, love the concept of it and, um, you know, it's their first proper full-on tour for like two years and we've kind of been in the studio sitting on a lot of these ideas and we've had to kind of keep it secret before the, um, you know, yeah. before, the, before the whole announcement that's just come out and we're finally getting on the road with it, so yeah, it's a real buzz. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like we've been sitting, you know, working in the dark for such a long time and now we're, you know, just finally unleashed <laughs> it's the longest ever UK tour as far as I know it's like we've probably done like what three weeks before Just the average is about three weeks isn't it? yeah yeah like and that okay. feels like a long tour but this one's five, five, yeah. five yeah yes a grueling time isn't it yeah. you're crisscrossing the country really yeah. to find your A, B, C, D and so on yeah yeah it's intense and um, yeah we're pr- pretty much playing three days on a day off you know so where are you looking forward to playing is there anywhere in particular that, that, that's grabbed your imagination a couple of years there was the strangest ones are, you know, like Jersey, you know, that's really off of the beaten touring path, you know. So, like, it's, it's even difficult, like, getting our equipment out there. And um, Zenners, you know, we had to, like, find somewhere of Zed. And so the only venue we could get was, like, the town hall. And it holds 70 people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's got a population of just over 200, I hear. It's going to be amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Those people down there, they yeah. won't know what's hit them, will they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the end of the tour party as well, and you know, the, the capacity of the venue, 70 people, we'll probably have more people there after shoot <laughs> yeah. in the pub across the street. Yeah. <laughs> so can you remember all the places you're playing? Where's V, for example? Ventnor in no, Isle of White. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's kind of weird that, you know, normally... It helps, actually. It's, it's the easiest, easiest tour yeah. to remember where you're going to be. Cause normally, as, as a band, you're just like, you wake up in the morning, you shout to the tour manager, where are we today? You have no idea. Yeah. But this this way it kind of it all kind of sinks in really. Yeah. And so when you shout to the crowd, "Hello, Ventnor," you're yeah. you'll be getting it right. Yeah, it? yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, have a great tour, and I'm hoping to come see you in, in Zenor. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Love you, okay. brilliant. I still love you, girl from Mars. Ash talking to Stephen Morris. Andy Duckworth and Phil Maynard were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.